So Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse number 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's all we'll deal with this evening. Turn back, if you would, just for um, some more references um, in Genesis chapter 14. And we'll see the historical narrative that this passage is referring to. So it's found in Genesis chapter 14, and as the writer to the Hebrew indicates, it's about a battle, and it's uh, relating to Abraham. And Abraham wins a victory. And in verse 17 it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedar Leomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And so forth. And the king of Sodom speaks to Abram. Then over to the book of Psalms. And the other reference to Melchizedek, Psalm 110. So Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Now that's all our reading. So we've got references there in two places in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament to this man, 
Melchizedek, and perhaps on a Friday night you're wondering, well, what is the practical, you know, what's the practical lesson that we can learn from a man called Melchizedek, who appears in the Old Testament, he's got a strange name, and he also appears in a very strange way. Well, this is actually a subject, particularly in the first ten verses, where our attention is not really directed to Melchizedek, but through Melchizedek, directed to the Lord Jesus. He's a picture, he's a type. He is instructive about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to learn about Christ this evening by learning about Melchizedek. That's the purpose of our studies. And just remember again, and you were fed up hearing this, but remember the context of this flow of thought through this book. And just to summarise again, the context is that these Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to Judaism. Some of them were not Christians. They had come a long way to being a Christian and had teetered on the edge, if you like, and then had turned back and others were in danger of following them back to Judaism, to all the external things of the senses, things you could touch and you could see and you could hear and so forth, and things which were impressive to the natural senses big temple, a a whole religious system of sacrifice and of all that kind of stuff you have in the Old Testament in the the Jewish system. And so they were tempted to go back, especially since they were being persecuted as they were, and the pressure was on them to go back. They had come away from it all to Christ. They had only Christ who wasn't even there anymore. So they had nothing physical in that sense. He had gone, and with him away, the Spirit of God had come, but there they were, and they seemed weak, and they seemed in a tiny minority, and they were being persecuted, and things didn't look particularly positive for them. And the writer to the Hebrew writes to bring them this positive message that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is sufficient, is more than enough for a person to live here upon earth and to be the of blessing in eternity and he's more and he's the fulfillment and he's better than all these things that they left behind all their great men Moses even Adam Joshua Aaron and so forth all these great people of the Old Testament Christ is better all the sacrifices of the Old Testament all these animals that were brought all the system all the grandeur and the pomp and the splendor of these great sacrificial occasions Christ is better than his sacrifice than all of these things put together. Better also than even the buildings that they entered into, which they had such significance. And so he was better even than the altar at the centre of the whole Jewish system. And that altar, which was so significant to them, in the centre of the temple, Christ is seen as being better than the altar, than the sacrifices that were laid upon it, than the priests who ministered at the altar as well. So he is the fulfillment of all of these types and shadows. And you come to this particular area that we've picked up on previously in chapter 5 when he speaks about their priests. Now if you go into the Old Testament, you discover this, that the priests were a big part of Jewish life. They were the go-betweens between God and the people. And the high priest in particular, that special job, once a year he represented the whole nation. He represented everyone. And he went as a representative right in the day of a Ultimately, he took a sacrifice for the iniquities of the people for a whole year. 
And if that sacrifice was accepted, then God would be with his people. If it wasn't accepted, then there was big trouble. And so the high priest had that hugely significant role. It's only him that could go into that holiest of all. But the priests, every single day they ministered between God and the people, taking the sacrifices of the people and and putting into practice the prescription of these offerings and how they were to be delivered to God and presented and so forth. So they were the mediators between men and God that enabled God to dwell amongst his people. They were hugely significant. They were also the people who were responsible for teaching the law of God. And although much of the Old Testament had really fallen into disrepute and had been changed by the Jews in the days of the Lord Jesus, then they still retained this idea that the law of God had to be taught to the people of God. And that had kind of developed into a synagogue structure that the priests and the people who ran the synagogue took the responsibility of teaching the people. So mediating between God and the people and then instructing the people in the law. The priests were part and parcel of daily life. Now the Christians have left that behind. So there's no one physically between a physical location where God was represented and then there was no physical aspect of priesthood that could be seen. So the writer says, listen, what we want to tell you is, first of all, you're all priests. You don't need people to mediate between you and God in the way that the Old Testament did because actually you in the right to enter into the you don't and when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ you are given rights of access into the very throne room of heaven in prayer you don't physically go into a building but you most certainly spiritually are able to approach God he, he accepts the Introduced to the fact that we also have a high priest, just like they did, except ours is a great high priest. Far better than any high priest they had in the Old Testament. So we have a great high priest. We saw that in chapter 5. And then we saw this section that was a warning section, if you remember. And now he picks this whole idea up because already in chapter 5 and verse 10, he's introduced our great high priest and it says this, he's called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then in verse 11, he says, of whom we have many things to say, hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now he deals with how dull of hearing they are from verse 12 of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 6. Now he picks it up again. And he says, I wanted to say a lot about Melchizedek. I want now to bring this challenge in in chapter 5, verse 12, down to the end of chapter 6. Now he says, having established all of that, let's get back to the subject. Now I do want to say something about Melchizedek. To explain to you just how it is that our high priest is a great high priest. Because he is actually different from the high priests in the Old Testament. And his uniqueness is is seen in this fact that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we need to learn about Melchizedek to understand the uniqueness of Christ's high priesthood. 
how it is he is our great high priest. Now this comes, it may seem a little bit historical and a bit of narrative and so on, but actually when you grasp what he's saying here, he's got some very simple and clear points to make about Melchizedek. And these simple and clear points actually point to the Lord Jesus and instruct us about some very encouraging truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that have a direct application to all of us here. So let's just pick them up um, as we come through. So the Lord Jesus is our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we've seen, as I've been mentioning, Melchizedek is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a picture. Now there's lots of things that you might hear from the Old Testament which are said to be pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word type may well be used. And it really just has the idea of pattern. So we can learn about the Lord Jesus by the pattern of what we see in Melchizedek. Now sometimes people, Bible teachers, get carried away with seeing lots of types in the Old Testament that maybe aren't there. And actually we don't need to get creative here because this is explicitly taught to us as being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not making this up. The Hebrew writer is now going to get into it and say, this is exactly what I mean. So he's going to tell us that by gaining an understanding of Melchizedek, we gain a deeper understanding of Christ. Now, what is the um, authority, if you like, for us to spend time thinking about this? Well, look at verse number four and the command in verse number four. And it is a command. Now consider how great this man was, Melchizedek. Now that expression, to consider, means to gaze at or to carefully observe. So it's the only command in the ten verses. So then the command that sits at the centre of these ten verses is this. The writer is saying, take a moment and think carefully about this man, Melchizedek. I want you to consider carefully and observe what the Bible says about this man so that we might learn about Christ. Now, sometimes we've got to do that in the Bible. You know, sometimes you can read the Bible and you can read it fast. You know, for example, if you're reading through um, some of the narrative of the book of the Acts, I've just finished reading through the book of the Acts, I'm into Romans in my daily reading, and some of it you just you find yourself reading quite fast because it's a narrative. It's a story. It's a, it's a series of events that unfold. And you, to be honest, you don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of the verses. But there's other parts in the Bible that you can't read it like that because you miss the truth that the verses are trying to convey. Other parts of the Bible where it's not narrative, where big stuff is said in small verses. And you need to read the verse and then you need to stop. And think and consider this truth against maybe something else that you've read in the Bible. Compare text to text. Work it out, think it out, ask questions about it. What I call interrogate the text. Just imagine you're cross-examining the Bible. And so you ask questions of the verses. You ask the question, why, why, or how, or where? Uh, and you start to interrogate the text to, to, to get the meaning come out of it. Well, that's really what the writer is saying here. Stop and think 
about this. Actually, we get the word theatre from that word. And it's the word you have to look at and there's something on display in front of you and you have to consider carefully what's going on. Right, so here's the flow of thought. Here's the big idea. So in these 10 verses, the, the thought flow that runs through, remember I, I quite often say to you that rather than just dive into the details in a section of the Bible, it's good to take a step back and see the whole picture, see the flow, the, the flow of thought that runs through them and then go back into the detail. So here's how it breaks up. In verse 1 down to verse number 3, we're introduced to Melchizedek and we're introduced to him in this way. He is both king and priest. It's the first thing. He is also, without genealogy, that is, we're not given his family background. Now, some of you have got a genealogy that runs forever. And you can trace your ancestors way back. Some of you can even trace your ancestors through meetings. And this one was in this meeting and that one came from there and married this one and through blah, 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 blah. Some of us can't do that. I often say that um, David and I here, we have no uncles or aunts or any cousins. And that sounds quite sad, but we don't feel sad about it at all. Um, we're grown up because we had no idea that was unusual. Um, so our genealogy is fairly narrow when you go back. Well, it's not as narrow as Melchizedek's because this is non-existent. Um, now, he had one, it's just not written and recorded for us. It's not as if he just kind of appeared. Um, so it's the way he's presented. So he's presented as king and priest, no genealogy or end of days. And it's interesting in these verses, and here's the important point, it says about him, he is made like unto the son of God. Now you might say, hold on a minute here. Melchizedek's in Genesis. The son of God doesn't appear in history until Matthew. So surely it's the son of God that's made like Melchizedek. No, scripture is very careful. It's the other way about. Because the Son of God existed eternally before ever Melchizedek came. So Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, not the other way about. And he remains a priest perpetually. That's the first three verses. Then we come to verse 4 down to verse number 7. And then he says something else about Melchizedek. He says Melchizedek is not only... Unique because he's a king and a priest. He's not only unique in scripture, really because the genealogy is not mentioned, neither is his death mentioned. He's presented in a certain way in the narrative of scripture. But also, he's greater than Abraham. Now that would have taken the Jews a step back and said, hold on a minute here. Have you no idea who Abraham was? He's the father of the nation. He's the most significant person in Jewish history. It's where it all began for them. I mean, it was Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees who was called out. He's the father of the faithful. He received the covenant promises. It was Abraham who received the promises that began to be fulfilled in Isaac. And they trace all their status and their blessing. Yes, to Moses, but beyond Moses, right back to Abraham. And yet this Melchizedek, the writer's saying, listen, I want to tell you Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And we'll see why he says that in verse 4 through to verse 7. Then in verse 8 to verse 10, he says Melchizedek is greater than the system of Levitical priesthood. Priests that came from Aaron and Levi. And they were mortal. They died. They were replaced. 
but not so Melchizedek in the narrative of Scripture. And then he speaks about tithes and so forth. We'll come to that as well. So, back to Melchizedek. You only know this name Melchizedek by the time we're finished tonight. Melchizedek. I'm interested to see if you can spell it in an hour because it's a very hard word to spell, I think. Melchizedek. So we've read three sections. Genesis 14, Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. Now this is the way to look at these three sections. Okay? So the first, Genesis 14, is historical. The second, Psalm 110, is prophetic. And the third, Hebrews 7, is theological. Okay, so there's, there's different emphasis in each of the mentions of this man. One, you introduced him into the narrative of history. That's Genesis 14. Psalm 110, he's mentioned in regard to prophetic utterances about the Lord Jesus. And in Hebrews 7, you see the theological significance of him explained and his place in Scripture explained. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, probably Jerusalem. Psalm 76, verse 2 is your reference for that. And he's the priest of the Most High God. Now, Genesis 14 is self-explanatory. What happened was this. Abram goes to fight a battle. Now, there was a conflict going on in Genesis 14 and Genesis 13. Abram wasn't part of it, per se, but he goes after the four kings that had taken his nephew Lot prisoner. Lot and his family had got caught up in a war. And they were captives. And they were being taken from Sodom, where they were living. Abram goes after them to rescue them. And he defeats the kings, recovers all the goods, and he brings back Lot and his family. And that's where we pick up the narrative. So Abram has, with his um, fighting men, he has intervened in the conflict. He's rescued his nephew and family. He's taken the goods that have been uh, pillaged. And he's, he's, he's on the way home. He's on the way back. What you then have is Melchizedek coming out to meet him before he engages with the king of Sodom. Now, before Abraham has to deal with the king of Sodom, Melchizedek meets him out of the blue, this man. Now, he meets him with bread and wine and talking about typology. If you didn't have Hebrews chapter 7 and you loved typology, what do you think you would pick up from Genesis 14 as a picture for New Testament truth? You likely would start going on about the Lord's Supper. That's not in it at all. It's not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. You see how easily you can just pick a thing up. And so what is mentioned is just this. He, he ministers to him. It's got more to do with the tithing is the issue as opposed to the bread and the wine, but he ministers to him and he meets him, and, and Abram is about to have this temptation put to him by the king of Sodom. And uh, the king of Sodom is basically saying, Give me the souls, give me the people, and you take the goods. Abram will not negotiate with him and will not take anything from the king of Sodom. But Melchizedek steps in and blesses Abram. And Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. Who is this man that Abraham will stop and receive a blessing from him and then in turn take 10% of his goods 
and give it to him. Who is this man, Melchizedek? Why is he so significant? Why will Abram, who's obviously a warrior, a man of faith, a man of God, who has won a great victory, why will he do that? Well, we're introduced to him and the significance of him in chapter 7. So he says this in verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, he is a king and he is a priest. Now you're not long reading through your Old Testament Bible you discovered that that just wasn't allowed in Israel. You couldn't be a king and a priest. You need to be one or the other. He's both. And so although you could not be king and priest, he is. And in this way, he's a lovely picture of the Lord Jesus, who is also a king and a priest. He is king of righteousness here. And he is king of peace. Introduced as king of Salem. This Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, made Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, and so forth. To whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Righteousness and peace. His kingdom was characterized and described by these two words. Righteousness and peace. It's significant, the order, actually. This is the spiritual order in relation to these two things. Righteousness comes before peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. And in this way, he's a lovely picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Do you know, the Lord Jesus is coming back. Bible teaches he's coming to the air. We should know this. He's coming to rapture the church to glory. He will take us away in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we will be raptured from this earth and then will come to pass a terrible time of tribulation on earth. Book of Revelation describes it. You have that seven year period broke into three and a half years. Three and a half years. Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter 9. But then, of course, the Lord Jesus is going to come again at the end of that tribulation period in the full manifestation of his glory. And you've got Zechariah chapter 13 and 14 and so many other scriptures, Matthew chapter 24, etc., 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it all points to the manifestation of Christ at the end of the tribulation period when he will come to establish his kingdom on earth and he will reign for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom of Christ. And during that millennial kingdom, the Bible tells us that he will impose upon earth righteousness. Righteousness shall be imposed by his rod of iron, scripture says. Sin will be quashed. Satan is removed, by the way, into the abyss for a thousand years. And you read about this in the book of Revelation. And because he is absent from earth and Christ is present, the whole earth is transformed. The Bible tells us that there will be a prosperity and a fruitfulness. That's where the lion will lie down with the lamb. That is where the Bible says, and here it is, it's one of the Psalms, I think maybe Psalm 76. It says that the righteous shall flourish and there shall be an abundance of peace. That's the kingdom of Christ. Where righteousness flourishes and where righteousness flourishes, there's an abundance of peace. It's the characteristic of the kingdom of Christ in that coming day. But listen, it's also characteristic of the kingdom of Christ now. We 
when we are saved as Christians, and we mustn't mistake this, when we are saved as Christians, we are not Israel. We don't receive the blessings of Israel. We are the church. We're brought into that beautiful picture, that beautiful entity called the church. And when we come into this entity, when we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a unique relationship with the Lord Jesus. He is the bridegroom and we are his bride. It's fantastic. But the church, which is a fairly small thing in the kind of flow of history, is also part of the bigger idea of the kingdom of God. So, for example, the Bible speaks about us as Christians being translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is not the church. The church is part of the big idea of the kingdom. Big idea. And in our day, this is not like the millennial reign of Christ. It's not a theocracy. Christ is not on a throne in Jerusalem. Where he will be, by the way, according to the book of Zechariah, in that coming day, his feet will touch Mount Olivet and split the mountain. And there will be what, I think, it's in um, one of the minor prophets, there will be what's called the valley of decision created. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, the prophet says. That's not a valley where they decide. That's a valley where Christ decides their eternal destiny as they're gathered for judgment, the judgment of the living nations. But you see, in our day, we are part of that kingdom in a spiritual sense. And righteousness ought to reign amongst us. And when righteousness reigns amongst us, then peace flourishes. Where there is no righteousness, there will be no peace. If we don't do the right thing, we will not live in peace amongst each other. If you don't do the right thing in your life, in your working life, in your student life, in your family life, wherever it is, there will be no peace within you. Because peace flourishes where there is righteousness. And peace is absence, where, absent where there is unrighteousness. And so this is the characteristic of the kingdom of Melchizedek and in him being a type of Christ is a picture of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is righteous in himself. Remember this, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as our righteousness. And he's also described as our peace. He provides righteousness and he provides peace in salvation. Remember this, that we receive righteousness imputed to us by faith. And remember this, we also receive peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ when we're saved. We receive righteousness and peace. And we ought to live these things out amongst us. You might say, well, does it matter if I do the wrong thing? Yes, it does. It matters to God and it will matter to you and it will matter to your relationships. There will be no peace. So Melchizedek is a picture in this. He was a king and he was a priest. And by the way, if you want to do a wee bit of research and find out people in the Old Testament who tried to be a king and a priest in Israel and the judgment that God brought to bear upon them. Because God was setting that apart for his son within the nation of Israel. So that's the first thing. Then notice this in verse number three. 
So we're learning about the Lord Jesus and his kingdom and his character as king. And by the way, the kingdom of Christ always takes character from Christ. And then in verse number three, we we have this idea of lineage and of duration. So it says here, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is significant in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis. You know, you're in the Old Testament and you come across these chapters where they're a nightmare to read publicly, if you ever have to read them publicly, because they're full of names that you get, well, I can't pronounce. And uh, you can tell when someone's struggling to pronounce them and you get quieter and quieter as you're reading them faster and faster. And then you just, you just for the sake of time, we'll skip these verses and just go to the bottom. Um, and I can remember, actually, just as it comes into my mind, I can remember, some of you remember David Stavely. He used to be in fellowship here and I can remember him sitting over there and there's red benches over there. And David and I, when we were early teens, there was a man called Tom Kent who was in fellowship here and used to give us out uh, the passage to read for a Bible reading or we get prayer letters to read, which are also a nightmare because they're full of names that we couldn't pronounce. And David could never do it. And he used to panic and uh, he used to just get faster and faster and quieter and quieter. So the genealogy in the Old Testament is a big thing. It's all right through Scripture. It was significant, it was important. But Melchizedek's lack of genealogy is significant in a whole kind of history of genealogies. They placed a lot of emphasis on your family line. I don't know if you still do that today. You remember when you were getting married, there were going to be uh, questions asked about the family line. I don't know how that will go, Duncan. Who knows? And, you know, there's all these questions about who you're related to and who your mum and dad are and who your grandparents are, etc., etc. Well, for the, the Jews, that was a big deal. A really big deal. Now, it wasn't just for kind of um, silly reasons. Actually, there was a huge spiritual significance in these things. Because the nation of Israel were, consisted of tribes. The, the, whole, the whole land that they were granted was divided up according to their tribal genealogy. And so their inheritance was connected to their family, their genealogy, and the piece of land in Israel that was assigned to that tribe. So it actually was, was significant in these areas. So they knew all about it, and they took great care about it. However, it says of Melchizedek, we don't know anything about his background. And so he's a classic, he's got nay background. That's what we say about folk who are just newly saved, nay background. Well, Melchizedek had nay background. We don't know of it anyway. And remember, he obviously did have a father and a mother. It's not saying that he just appeared without going, coming into the earth through natural childbirth. It's not saying he doesn't, didn't appearance. It's not saying he didn't die is saying that he is presented in the Bible in such a way that we don't know anything about his genealogy. And we don't know anything about how he died. So you just read about him appearing, and then you don't read about him dying. He's a picture. And he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is eternal. We know that he has no beginning nor end of days. You can take this language and apply it to the Lord Jesus, albeit the language is in context referring to Melchizedek. And so this is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither 
there's your beginning of days, nor end of life. And in this way, the writer says, he is made like unto the Son of God. What's the significance? The significance is this. That priests were born and priests died. But the Lord Jesus Christ will never die again. He is in heaven as our great high priest and he's not going to die. He's going to minister as our great high priest and he's going to keep on. There will never come a point when he has to be replaced or superseded or, or, or passes away. And so he abides a priest continually. So then he goes on. And by the way, the lineage of the Lord Jesus, even on earth, was very different. He didn't come from the priestly tribe of Levi. He came from Judah. And so he fulfills the type of Melchizedek as reported in Genesis. Then notice this, this thing about tithes. So what's a tithe? Well, a tithe is a percentage that was given in offering to God. It was a taxation. Now just think about this. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there were two forms of giving. There was giving that was compulsory and giving that was optional. The compulsory giving was through the tithing system that operated in the nation of Israel. And by the way, if you work out the tithing system, you discover this, and with a general election coming up and tax being talked about, that the tithes of the nation amounted to 23% of your income. There was three general tithes that had to be paid. And when you bring them together, they amount to about 23%. So if you were living in Israel, you were taxed to that extent. And that enabled the civil service to be paid for, which was the, the Levites, and it enabled the national religious life of the nation to function. And so all the things about Israel and all the, the, the celebrations and all the national festivals had to be paid for, and that was paid for out of the tithe. And then also there was, I think every third year, there was a tithe taken for the poor. And so there was giving towards poverty in the nation. It was a sophisticated taxation system that enabled the nation of Israel to function. That was compulsory. By the way, as Christians, we also have compulsory giving. And we have to pay our taxes to enable the servants of God who are the government raised up by God in any country. We have a responsibility as Christians to pay for that government to function and to govern our nation. It's not optional, it's compulsory as a Christian. It's part of our responsibility. It is demanded giving. Taxation. When you then go to the Old Testament, you've got optional giving. So that a man, out of devotion and love for the Lord, and he wanted to express that love, he could take something that was of great value to himself. He could take money, or he could take an animal. If he was wealthy, he could take a bullet. If he was poor, a turtle dove, whatever. And he could take it, and he could go up to the temple, and he could offer sacrifices to God, free will offerings. And he could do that to the extent of his appreciation of the Lord. There's lots of ways that he could give. When you come to the New Testament, you discover that's the same with us. That the Lord gives us the opportunity to give in keeping with the extent 
of our prosperity and the extent to which he has enriched us, then out of that and in accordance with that, we can give. And we can give to the Lord. Principally, we're giving to him out of our resources, but we can direct it to various things, to assembly life, to, to perhaps other good works in the community, to perhaps other Christian endeavours beyond your own assembly out there, wherever. And you can take your resources and freely give it to the extent. There's no compulsion, which is why, by the way, when you come into the New Testament, churches are not instructed to tithe. You're already paying your tithes in the Old Testament. By paying your taxes, it is free will offering that is upon us, which, of course, should be more onerous than tithing. I mean, the Lord should be getting more than 10% of our income in the various ways that we serve him in our lives. He shouldn't really be getting a tiny percentage of, uh, of our income. So when you come to this idea of tithing, then it's an odd thing what took place. I'm not labour this point because it's a very simple point. So what happened is two things. Number one, Melchizedek's face to face with Abram. Abram's the warrior. Abram's the man with the wealth. This man, Melchizedek, just appears. And he's going to minister to Abram and he's going to feed him and refresh him. Bread and wine. And then he will bless him. Now the writer says, mark this, the less is always blessed of the greater. So there is a blessing pronounced. And that blessing has to come from the greater to the lesser. When you think about us and the Lord Jesus, remember this, the Bible says this. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. But in return, we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what's the difference? If you look at the words, the Greek words, the word that's used of God blessing us is that he is enriching us. He is providing us with something otherwise we would not possess. When it's us blessing him, it's the word eulogize. It just means that we're speaking well of him. We're praising him. Because that's all we've got to give, which is the fruit of our lips. We can't enrich God like he can enrich us. But we can actually bless him with the fruit of our lips. But here, Melchizedek is seen as being greater than Abraham because he's pronouncing a blessing upon the man. This is how great Melchizedek is. But then Abraham returns to Melchizedek and he gives a tenth, a tithe to him. And to the Jew, they would understand this. That was very significant. It meant that Melchizedek was even greater than Levi and the Levitical priesthood. There's one wee technical point here. We're nearly done. And the technical point is just this. So Levi is Abraham's great-grandson. Okay, so work this out. You here are good at family trees. Levi is Abraham's great-grandson. So he wasn't born. But in the Jewish mind... He is seen as being part of Abraham. So what Abraham did, actually, Levi is seen as being contained within Abraham and affected by Abraham's actions. 
Now you see that, for example, with Adam, first man. Remember this. As by one man sin came into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The reason that you and I were born as sinners is because we are seen by God as being in Adam when Adam sinned. It's what when the theologians call, uh, they start to speak about the idea of, of corporate responsibility and headship. And so, by the way, when Christ died upon the cross, when you accept him as saviour, you are seen as being connected to that as well. And so, federal headship, I should say. So, we're, we're seen in this, it's this, 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 this idea of, of what Adam did directly impacted us and what Christ did directly impacts those who trust him as saviour. So we're seen as being in Adam. Then when we get saved, we're seen as being in Christ. And that's a significant principle in the Bible. And Melchizedek here is seen as taking tithes from Abraham. And because Levi was a descendant of Abraham, then he's seen as being greater than Levi as well. So these Jews were saying, listen, we've got a priesthood. It's a Levitical priesthood. Better than anything that you can think about. And we've got a great high priest, Levi. And the father of our nation is Abraham. The writer to the Hebrews says, stop and think about Melchizedek. When you work Melchizedek out, you will realise that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is greater than Levi, is greater than Abram, and his priesthood is greater than all of these things. It endures forever. It's eternal because he is. And what they had in Christ far exceeded all that they had in the Levitical priesthood. And so as he wraps that up in terms of speaking about Melchizedek, He'll go on and he'll finish the idea through chapter 7 and speaking about Melchizedek and the priesthood. But as he wraps this kind of identification of Melchizedek, here's what I want you to take away. First of all, the idea of a type or a picture. So that in your Old Testament, when you're reading through all these stories, what you should try and do is think about how these men and women and incidents in the Old Testament teach us about the Lord Jesus. Very often, they are pictures that point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see that the Lord Jesus is greater and better, but nonetheless, we can be instructed about the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament. It's not just Old Testament stories. Then when you think about Melchizedek himself, he's taught us by being a picture that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has no beginning nor end. He is eternal. He is our priest. He's our great high priest. We've thought about that already in our studies. It means when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up, when you're thinking about him, when you're not thinking about him, he is there ministering on your behalf as a believer before the very throne of God. And when you come to Melchizedek, you discover this, that he's a picture of the fact that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is stamped with these two words, righteousness, and peace. And by the way, these two things should stamp our lives and our assemblies. Righteousness and peace. And remember this, you can't have peace unless you have righteousness. You just can't. 
That's true in salvation. We have peace with God. Why? Because the righteousness of God was satisfied in relation to our sin. God could not bring us into peace by fudging our sin. It couldn't happen. And we ought not to do the same. So I hope tonight we've learned a little about the man with the strange name, Melchizedek, and through him something about the Lord Jesus.